37 in the handout. We're in the middle of Isaiah 48 now. Just to uh, recap, bring us up to speed from last week. The Lord was rebuking rebellious Israel who invoked God's name, who even called on God's name, and yet, as he said, not in truth, in righteousness. So the stubbornness of Israel, the rebelliousness of Israel is rebuked at this point. And now we, we kind of get to a wrap-up section. Um, this final section will kind of draw from a lot of the topics we looked at in this whole, these past really 10 chapters as it's divided for us here, from Isaiah 40 all the way to um, the start of 49. This section, Isaiah 48, 12 to 22, I titled, The Lord Pleads for Israel to Play Pay close attention. So, one more plea in light of all that he promised to do, has done, and will do. God wants them to listen to him. So, at the top of our study guide here I have, God concludes this portion of Isaiah's prophecy by basically saying, Pay attention. I'm working all things for your benefit and foretelling all my working for your benefit. Can you share maybe when it's the hardest for you? to see the truth of Romans 8.28, to see that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Anyone have a, an example you can share? When is it hardest for you to see that? Well, Anytime something to, hard comes on us. Yeah, when I'm trying to uh, talk to my kids about, um, about Jesus, and they're not interested. Sure. And you look at what's maybe going on in their life, and... They're wondering about, you know, why is this happening? You're thinking, well, God has a reason, right? Yeah, there's another, another siren going off for the Rachel and Ryan's neighborhood, another reminder to keep praying today for them. We just got word about that, and we're still hearing sirens if you're listening to the recording. Yeah? Um, when you have a situation like that, when you're praying for another person, does, I mean, and you're praying for that for that person, I mean, if things are going to work out for you, you know, you know, eternally and everything, but is there any comfort you can have that God will take care of the other people? Right, you know, we know the promise is, and that's what this chapter is all about, isn't it? Good for those who trust in the Lord. So sometimes you want to direct your prayer, Lord, you know, help them to trust in you so they can trust that you're working all for their good. Going to go check on your house? Yes. Okay. We'll keep praying. So if you're listening to the recording, Rachel and Ryan often attend this Bible study, but they got a call right at the start as we heard sirens going by, and there's some smoke in the neighborhood, and it's right next to their house. So pray for Judy is also in that neighborhood, everyone in that area, that the fire will be soon under control. Okay. So... Why don't we jump into our reading here? We'll read verse just, let's just read verse 12. So Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and the last. So I wanted to discuss, based off, based off of what we read in chapter 1 of this verse, or verse 1, sorry. He says, listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name Israel, who take oaths in the name of the Lord, invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth. You read that again in verse 12, he says, listen, Israel, whom I have called. What's the importance of being called by God, considering what we read in verse 1? 
Well, he's telling us, I am he, I am first, I am the last. And if we're called by him, that, that's just great to me. That, that's perfect. Yeah, marvel on just that fact that God called you. Because it doesn't matter who you call on. What matters is the true God call you. Yeah. So we kind of, we sometimes focus the wrong direction, like, who am I invoking? Because Israel is invoking the God of Israel, not in truth. They called on the name of the Lord, and they were called by the name Israel. So they might say, oh, you are Israelites, you are people who worship the Lord. That doesn't matter unless you're actually called by God, right? And yeah, I like how you emphasized there, Pat. Uh, you mentioned who is the one that called you? The, the one who is, the first and the last, the everlasting, the eternal God. Think about who called you, you who are so short in your lifespan. Yeah. Here today, gone tomorrow, the, the grass withers, the glory of mankind is so short, but the glory of the eternal God, he called us. Sometimes we get the, the direction backwards, and the importance is all on what do you say or what name do you take on? Well, who's the one that called you? That's what truly matters. Other thoughts on verse uh, 12 as we jump into this section? Let's read the, the next chunk, verses, uh, we'll take together, 12 through 15. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. Of course, who's that? We've read about him. Who's the Lord's chosen ally who's going to go against the Babylonians? Cyrus, yeah. So he's invoking one more time. This will be one of the last times he mentioned Cyrus. But he just said, verse 13, I summoned the heavens and the stars, and what do they do? They stand at attention. So how about you, Israel? Are you going to stand at attention and listen to me when I tell you I have summoned someone like Cyrus? Verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. So let's see if we can uh, identify the significant connection between God's power exercised at creation with his power exercised over nations throughout history. Well, as usual, it's planned. It's just not happenstance. Right. It's not coincidence. God, it God reveals, even at creation, yeah, he's got a plan, a purpose. Even at creation, he reveals the, the heavens and the, the stars are supposed to march in order to mark the times and seasons for us, for us. Same thing with his, he has a plan for the nations, for us. Some people believe that maybe there's a God who created and got things started, but then he just sits off to the side and watches. And that's not, that's not what God tells us about himself. He's actively involved in our lives. Right, if we believe that there's simply, uh, I don't know, they, do they call that, is that the watchmaker theory? Like he set us, he wound us up, and he just kind of lets the universe unravel, do its thing. 
on its own, if that's what you believe, you're missing what he says here when he says, when I summon them. So not just at creation, but he who spread out the heavens can still command and does command and control the heavens. Doesn't that mean a lot for if he's controlling the heavens and the stars, the cosmos, is he not also controlling what takes place on this earth and the events of history and the nations as they make their plans? It also makes you realize how small you are in comparison to everything else, but God loves us and takes care of us. We are smaller than the, the grand scheme of the nations that God controls, and those nations are small in the grand scheme of the whole of history of the world. And all of the nations and histories combined are small compared to the number of stars and planets that he puts in motion. Yeah, we are so relatively, in, com in comparison, quite small. But, you know, when you think about it, though, then there's, even though individually and even as a group here, we seem so small and insignificant, all this is for our benefit. Right, that's an important aspect here. You know, um, it's all for us, even me. It says in, it says in verse 15, he will succeed in his mission, that Cyrus has a mission for Jacob, for God's plan and purpose for his people, and that, that we can take that to heart, that God does all this for his church, rules over the nations for our benefit. That's definitely an important aspect to bring out here. There's another thing I wanted to kind of note it, as you look at verse 12 through 15, not only does it emphasize God's power, but how does he exercise his power? Through, through us. Right through us, but... Simply speaks. He speaks, yeah. So I have spoken, I have summoned, I have called, I will bring. Um, he says, when I summon them, they stand together regarding the heavens. And he says, I have called him, I will bring him. So God's word, right? The, not just the power of God, but the fact that he chooses to work by his spoken word to accomplish his purpose too. Even as he created the heavens, he can summon the heavens and he can speak about what will happen in history and by the power of what he has said will take place. So that's kind of a neat thing to bring in there. Um, compare and contrast what it meant for Jacob to be called, verse 12. He says, Israel, whom I have called, with Cyrus to be called, that's verse 15, I have called him. So let's see if we can compare and contrast. What did it mean for Jacob to be called and what did it mean for Cyrus to be called? Well, Jacob was called to believe and Cyrus was just called to do God's bidding. Yeah, so Jacob's calling was a call to, you mentioned believe and therefore be you know, part of the people of God who trust in the Lord. They were called out of the unbelieving nations to serve and worship and trust in the Lord. Whereas Cyrus, that's a pretty big contrast, isn't it? He was just called to be a tool. So when he says, I have called him, Cyrus is called for the benefit of the one who was called first and called to faith. Anything that we can compare? Both are called the one that God has called, but really there's not much more you can compare that make them the same. Since one is called in faith and the other one's called just to serve God's purpose even in unbelief. What about all believers? What, what does it mean when scripture says all believers have been called? We see that picture that um, he not only tells Israel he called them, 
but he speaks through the apostles that those who he has called, he has justified, and those he justified, he will glorify. So we are all called, or as Peter might, you know, Peter puts it, he called you out of darkness. Well, Cyrus was called for a mission to do something God wanted him to do. But we also are called because we're called to share that word and live. Right. Both are to serve God's will. So Cyrus definitely was called to accomplish, it says here, he will succeed in his, his mission. So called for a purpose. How much higher, though, isn't our purpose, not just to accomplish a temporary feat in history for the good of the church. We are part of the church, called for the purpose of being the very end, not just the means of God's mission, that he's called us to live in his kingdom, to serve him. So yeah, that's definitely a good comparison. Both are called for a purpose. And we're, I get the word chosen, I like that word. Chosen by God. Yeah, very similar to called is chosen. So we have um, God being the acting agent, right? He chose us and he called us by his gospel. Other thoughts on these verses? Um, I had some uh, comparisons here. Israel, if we go back to chapter 43, it says in verse 1, The Lord who created you, Jacob, the Lord who formed you, O Israel, do not be afraid. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. So when God mentions his call of Israel in chapter 43, he tells Israel they're redeemed and they belong to him. But when we read in chapter 46 of Cyrus's call, he says, I am the one who calls a bird of prey from the east. I call the man who fulfills my plan from a faraway land. I formed a plan and I will carry it out. So a very different way he speaks of Israel, I've called you and I've redeemed you in your mind. Cyrus, you're a bird of prey and you're going to accomplish a task for me. So, and then finally, yeah, as we said, all believers, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14 is a good verse for that. He says, Paul writes, He called you through our gospel so that you would obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. So our calling is for the, the highest purpose, to be glorified with Christ. Um, verse 16 is what we're going to jump on next. Come near and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. So verse 16 is where I got the, the title of what I titled these verses. The Lord ple pleads for Israel to pay close attention. So come near to me and listen. I have not spoken in secret. And then that revelation, some Bibles might have a change in voice here. So this could be the, the servant of the Lord speaking. The sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his spirit. Some might interpret this as Isaiah speaking. But let's, let's consider that. I think that's pretty key right here. Someone who's saying the sovereign Lord, so that's the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, and then you got the word God. Our, our Bible, the NIV that we're using here, translates it Sovereign Lord. Some might have like Lord Almighty or Lord God. The Sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. I want you to see if you can explain why this verse must be spoken by the Christ and not just meant to be a quote from Cyrus. 
So we were just talking about Israel being called, Cyrus being called. Who is this one that's speaking now that says the sovereign Lord has sent me? Why does it have to be the Christ? I don't think Cyrus would refer to him as sovereign. Right. So if this was a, a quote that's supposed to be referencing what Cyrus would say in the future, Cyrus never really claimed God was the Lord Almighty, the only God, the Lord God, the sovereign Lord. And actually, maybe we can compare it. When's the last time we talked about the servant of the Lord who was called by him that had his spirit poured out? That goes back to the first time that we had the servant of the Lord mentioned. It's Isaiah 42, verse 1. So consider what we see in 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Notice it's singular. And he will bring justice to the nations. Now, it sounds like, oh, that could be Cyrus. Cyrus is the servant of the Lord who's going to bring justice to the nations. No, Cyrus brought justice for Israel and some of the nations, you know, held up by the Babylonians. But this one has the spirit of the Lord. This one is the one that the Lord delights in. Never does it say that God delights in Cyrus or that Cyrus is a believer who has the Holy Spirit. This has to be the same servant mentioned in Isaiah 42. The servant who would bring justice to all the nations. The servant who has the Holy Spirit poured out on him. So although Cyrus is called the servant of the Lord, he doesn't acknowledge the Lord. And his task is only a sample of what God would do and make his plans. And the true servant of the Lord, unlike Cyrus, has the Holy Spirit poured out on him, which what we saw introduced in Isaiah 42. And also the previous verse, just look in the immediate context here. And did we see that fulfilled then at Jesus' baptism? Right. So we mentioned that when we looked at chapter 42. Who's the one that has this fulfilled? It's the one that John the Baptist baptized, and we saw the Spirit from heaven come down. And that ties in with Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is the, the messenger who would come. So, yeah, you, you see this fulfilled in the, the ministry of Christ, that this points to him. This is a definite prophecy that really only can be fulfilled in the servant of the Lord. Look at the immediate context. The previous verse just had the Lord say, I have spoken. And it's the same speaker in this section. You don't see an indication, any clear indication that there has to be a change of speaker here. So it says, I, the Lord, have spoken. I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And then all of a sudden you have it saying, the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. That only makes sense within the context of the Trinity, that the Lord sends the Son, and the Son can say, I have spoken. He is the Word who has spoken. So this perfectly fits the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that the I have spoken. It's, it's a little curious that the speaker doesn't seem to change from the Lord, but the speaker is sent by God the Lord, and the speaker receives the Spirit of the Lord as it's poured out on him. That really only fits in the person of Christ. Um, my Bible has everything in quotes that God said, but not this. Yep, mine too. So the quotes, you got to remember, they're an interpretation. So whenever you see a quote, like it's trying to reference, this is a direct quote, they can get that from some of the syntax in Hebrew that this must be a quote. But as far as who the speaker is and when that quote begins and ends, that's often subjective. 
And um, the Hebrew language didn't have what we have in English, the punctuation for, you know, a quotation mark and end quotation mark. Hebrew didn't have that. So it's somewhat interpretive. And it kind of fits because you do see a change in speaker. The person seems to be different, and yet the person doesn't have to be different from the Lord who says, I have spoken, I am there, the Sovereign Lord has sent me. Jesus yeah. is one God. Sure. It fits the, the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. So like when I'm reading through it, I just automatically assume it's Isaiah talking. But does Isaiah interject like that anywhere else? Um, you do have Isaiah sometimes speaking with um, the third, first person plural with a we. And you do have Isaiah, especially in the first half of the book, introducing his own, you know, I. However, we're going to see when we get to verse 49, this is really a segue into what we're going to see in verse 49. Notice as you see in verse 49, it's an I, I, listen, I, I. The Lord has called me. He's spoken my name. Some people are going to take 49, Isaiah 49, and say, well, that's Isaiah. But we're going, to, we're going to jump into that. I don't know if we'll get to it today, and we'll see this has to be messianic. Now, when we read, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And it says it's too small for you to restore Israel and Jacob. So it's, it's, if it's Isaiah or if it's Israel, they're also sent to Israel and for Israel. So it's a singular person who is of Israel coming for the benefit of Israel and will reach salvation to the ends of the earth. As far as we know, Isaiah didn't reach to the ends of the earth, right? So it's not Isaiah. And the people of Israel would only reach to the ends of the earth as they go out with the gospel of Christ. And it's the Messiah who is of Israel who was sent for Israel. So getting the wider context, you could say, okay, maybe that's Isaiah. Right? Isaiah's speaking by the Spirit of the Lord. And he says, this is what the Lord says. But when you look at where this is leading us, we're about to get into Messianic section. This really fits that this would be the Messiah who's being introduced once again here. I wouldn't argue if someone wants to say that verse 16 of chapter 48 is Isaiah, but there's no doubt when you get to the next chapter where we're, where we're headed here. So also um, it's a little curious that it uh, doesn't change. There is no indication that this would be all of a sudden Isaiah is speaking, and now the Sovereign Lord has sent me. Because it's talking about the one as God is sending for his mission for all people, just in the context. So Cyrus was just a future prophesied event, and what Cyrus would do really was going to lead us to a bigger picture. And actually, you can find all three persons of the Trinity in this verse then. If you look at chapter 48, verse 16, the Sovereign Lord, His Spirit, and the voice, me. So who did the Sovereign Lord send? He sent His Son. And the Son, as Bill said, this is seen in Jesus' baptism. And it really echoes us back to chapter 42. And that's another reason I'd say probably a better interpretation than Isaiah himself is go back to chapter 42, when it says, My servant in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. So that's the way I like to understand that verse. If someone wants to see it as Isaiah, okay, maybe. 
but definitely not Cyrus and certainly not just Israel itself. Other thoughts on that verse? It stands out. This, this verse does stand out. And maybe your, your indentation in your Bible even brings that out. With that, 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 that section in my Bible, it has it all by itself, and they're not sure if they're going to put quotes on it or not. They just left it. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. And just before that, you've got, I, the Lord, have spoken. So the, the first person, the Lord speaking. Good right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Should we take verse 17 and 19? <clears throat> Here's a section that kind of ties together, um, talking about what promise was made to Abraham, and also God is keeping every promise. So verse 17 through 19 of chapter 48. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numerous, numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. So remember God made that promise to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the sands and as the stars. God actually kept that promise to make them numerous, but he would not continue to bless them since they had turned aside from them. Plus, not just Abraham, but what Moses told everybody too. This is what God said. You keep my decrees and you keep keep my commands and things will go well with you. You will be blessed, yeah. So it was repeated. So time and time and time again. And this is kind of after, let's see, how many hundreds of years was that? So Abram first got this about 2000 BC. And then, as Bill just mentioned, it was repeated by Moses, 1440 BC. So you have six to seven hundred years later, it was repeated to generation after generation. The prophets kept repeating it, and now we get to Isaiah 700 years later. So Moses is roughly in the middle of Abraham and Isaiah. So now we're talking many centuries. What do you got there? That's 1,300 years, 13 to 1,400 years roughly. Well, then you go to Jesus too. They kept making, the Jewish leaders, always making reference, oh, you go against the law of Moses. Right, which by then the prophets had said, here, and here it is, if only you had paid attention, you would have, your peace would have been, your descendants would have been, and it wouldn't be blotted out or destroyed from before me. In other words, it's about to happen, which it did. Uh, the, the whole northern kingdom completely wiped out, brought into exile. The, the southern kingdom now is next, and Isaiah's warning, it's going to happen. Jerusalem's destroyed. The line of the kings cut short, never fully destroyed because of God's promise, but sent into exile, humiliated. Yeah. Um, this is from, listen to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, verse 22. Um, we can read Although your people, Israel, are like the sand of the sea, so that part of the promise is kept. Although your people are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. 
Complete destruction has been decreed, overwhelming but righteous. So we already saw that in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22. God's saying, I kept that part of the promise just to show you how gracious I am, but only a remnant is going to actually survive what is to come now because of your rebellious rebellion. Um, as far as the, the as numerous as the sand, it's an idiom. You know, this is hyperbole. Uh, sometimes, you know, the promise, if you, if you take it literally, what, what's the language expressing when it says you'll be as numerous as the stars? We know there are millions and billions of stars. Uh, the point is you can't count them. Uh, the scriptures actually regard that promise as having been fulfilled. Israel was great in number, even when they came out of Egypt. We numbered about you know, 700,000 men, so 2 million. And if you look at Joshua 11, it says God kept his promise. Look at Judges 7, 12. It says God kept his promise. They were as numerous as the, the stars. Look at 1 Samuel 13, 5, 2 Samuel 17, 11, 1 Kings 4, 20, Hebrews 11, 12. Over and over again, Scripture says God kept that promise to Abraham. Literally kept it in that the people were numerous and you couldn't even count them as they came out of Egypt and were blessed and they took over the promised land. But Isaiah cries out about Israel, as Paul says in Romans 9, 27, Although the number of the sons of Israel is as great as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. So Paul quotes from Isaiah 10 in Romans chapter 9, basically saying what we're reading about here. You would have been blessed if only you had paid attention, if only you had listened to me, Israel, but now only a remnant will be saved. And here he's saying, you'll be blotted out, destroyed from before me. So in what light are we to view God's commands? Based on these verses here, verse 17 through 19. Well, he's true to his word. Okay, yeah, if, if God connects his commands to a good blessing, or, yeah, to a blessing or a curse, he also ties in warnings, but also promises. If he connects it to that, he will follow through on it. We know that much, yeah. Um, I like where it says, who teaches you what is best for you. It's, I just want to be God, so you better follow me. It's like this, I want you to have what's the best. We, of course, <laughs> say, well, we know best, but I, I, I like that. that, that that's the whole purpose behind it. He wants what's best. Right. I like the way that that's worded there. It's teaches you what is best for you. Very simple. When, when God gives us his word, we shouldn't view it as his commands are there for, you know, his benefit or his commands are there so that it goes well for him. It's best for us. He knows what's good for us. So we should view his commands as good, not as bad. The law is meant to be a blessing. Although it becomes a curse because of our sin and our rebellion, and we don't keep it. So he, he, and, you know, if he gives us commands that are best for us and directs us in the way we should go, he's a loving God who wants us to be blessed and to serve him. However, we fail, right? So we, we must praise him that even though he gave us his good commands, we praise him for redemption because we haven't kept these laws even though they're given for our good. Other thoughts on these verses, 17 through 19? Comments, questions? Yeah. Well, one thing too is that a lot of times things, bad things then happen 
And that's also God's love to, to draw us back. Yeah. Yeah, not only were the commands what's best for them, but the consequences they received for breaking those commands were still what's best for them. So in the end of the day, God's people can say, even as sinners who have broken his commands, your commands are good, and as we suffer for breaking them, you still are good. That's, that takes faith. You know, the unbeliever would rail against God's commands, say, you just don't want me to have fun, or you're a jealous, evil God, and you don't really, you know, a God that would say that doesn't really care about me. And now that I'm suffering for breaking it, it's your fault, God. That's what sin does. Faith says your commands are good, and even if I suffer for breaking them, the consequences are what's best for me. Yeah. Next we get to a, almost like a, a jubilant song of praise that he had just said they're going to be blotted out. Their name would you know, not last and they'd be destroyed from before God. But then God doesn't leave them there. He wants to insert this idea that, yes, there is destruction. But he says, leave Babylon, free from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. And then it concludes, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Kind of a mixture of a lot of thematic content all thrown in as we close this section. Mm -hmm. Uh, but these verses here essentially compare the deliverance from Babylon to the deliverance from Egypt. You know, you who did not thirst when I led you out of the desert, you're not going to thirst as I lead you out of exile. Um, declare what God has done when he leads you out of captivity. Rejoice, Israel. Shout it out, the Lord has redeemed us. So what we're going to see now as we read on in Isaiah it's going to describe the Lord's greatest deliverance, which actually outmatches both that deliverance from Egypt and the deliverance from the Babylonians. Both of those you know, events were great events for the people of God, but they're both going to pale in comparison to where he's leading us next, uh, that, that God brings us to announce the good news with joy. Uh, if you're going to use these verses, 20 through 22, Use them to discuss one of the proper responses to God's greatest acts of deliverance. How should we respond to his acts of deliverance? Right. Announce it with shouts of joy. Proclaim it. So in gratefulness, we take the word of God and what do we do with it? Praise him and tell, announce it to others, right? So... If God has redeemed you, wouldn't you want to send it out to the ends of the earth? The Lord has redeemed his servant. And also maybe take to heart verse 22, there's no peace for the wicked. Don't expect, if you're going to hold on to your sin, that you're going to joy, enjoy this celebration in his deliverance. But for those of you who do experience his deliverance, shout for joy, let it be known to the earth that God has delivered his people. So yeah, announce the gospel with joy when he delivers you. Let's review this chapter. So all of chapter 48 now. Remember this, the theme of the chapter, it covered a lot of topics in this section as it closed out. But the theme basically is Israel is stubborn 
And God wants them to pay close attention to what he has done, what he's about to do, because he's going to reveal now his greatest plan. So reviewing 40, chapter 48, I want you to compare the first and last verse of this chapter. So look at Isaiah 48, verse 1, and Isaiah 48, verse 22, the first and last verses of this chapter. Explain why it would be a mistake to assume God will deliver everyone who invokes his name based off the first and last verse. This is the part in our audio recording where I get rid of the dead silence. <laughs> audio files abhor silence. Some people think it stopped going. So if it seemed like I didn't give them time to digest that, we did. I'm about two weeks behind in posting the audio, but it, it's out there. So it says they call on the name of the Lord, but they don't keep their promises. And then the last verse, he's saying there's no peace for the wicked. So they're, they're calling on God, but not really truly listening or believing in truth or righteousness. And the last verse, for some people, there will be no peace. So it's one thing to simply say, I belong to God, but do you believe it? Do you live by it? Well, that show a lack of faith. People are calling on the name of God, but not in truth or righteousness. They're doing it like, hey, we're your people, you owe us or something, but not in, for the right reason, mm -hmm. not lack of faith. So both lack of faith, taking for granted, and maybe even wickedness to think, Peace, peace, no destruction will come. That got to the point where God has say, no, you're rebellious, you're stubborn, you're going to lose out on the promise given to Abraham because there's no peace for the wicked, you who invoke my name but not in truth. I think that's a strong warning for, yeah, both taking for granted uh, a shallow or empty faith, a hip hypocritical life where you say, I belong to God, but then you live in wickedness instead of repentance and faith. I think that's an important thing to look at when you see this chapter. It's sandwiched by both ends of warning. Uh, those who don't have faith in Christ cannot be saved, even if they take on the name of the Lord. Apply the truths from this chapter to your life. What's our natural condition in relationship with God from birth, based on what we saw in this chapter? Yeah, in this chapter, Israel is called a rebel from birth. And isn't that something we have to take to heart? That was our natural condition too, from our birth. Rebellious enemies of God. So what we see taking place in the history of Israel gets echoed in everyone who is born into this world and takes on the name Christian or of the Lord. So why does that make the call to action found in verse 20 so important? What's the call to action in verse 20? To share the word. Yeah. As you're leaving behind that rebellious life and the, the exile, you're freed from what God has delivered you from, announce it. Send out the, the message that God is our Redeemer. We were lost. Announce that good news. Uh, chapters, as I mentioned, chapters 46, 47, and 48 all deal with God's judgment on those who turn against him. Both unbelievers and the rebellious, unbelieving descendants of Israel. God's dealing out his judgment against the Babylonians, the gods of the Babylonians, 
and the false worshipers in Israel. Take a look at verse 9 and 11 of this chapter. Explain why the Lord dealt differently with Israel when dealing out his judgments against sin. Why did God deal with Israel differently than against the way he dealt with the godless Babylonians and their, their gods? Yeah, he made a promise. Therefore, he was not going to obliterate Israel altogether for his own sake, not because Israel deserved it. And that's quite a a striking example if you try to appropriate that truth. You know, if God is going to wipe out every Christian church in America, if he spares any, it's not because they deserved it. It's because he doesn't want his name to be wiped out. He wants his name and his word to be carried so it should be a, a humbling thought for anyone as they experience God dealing out his judgments. Why does he spare any? For his own sake, not because we're, we're the ones worth sparing. It's his own sake. Well, and for, for his sake, because he wants to fulfill his promise through the messianic line. For the sake of his promise and his name. Yeah. His he attaches... He attaches himself so closely to his promise as the God who is faithful. Take a look at uh, verse 17 of this chapter, which we just read, about the Lord teaching and directing his people. So he teaches, he directs, he leads Israel. What are some of the different ways God has intervened in history to teach Israel lessons? Yep. So you have like... um, up to this time, you had the prophet Elijah say, there'll be no rain, so you might know that the Lord is God. Other times, with, with, uh, connected with that famine, that all of a sudden, at the prophet's word, the rains came. Okay, yep, the way that he gave his word, the vision to Joseph, and that he preserved them through the, the seven years famine, he directed them to rely on him, and that he would provide. We could just basically look at all of the events of the Old Testament, right? God was teaching them, leading them, and preserved and wrote down many of these things for us to be taught and led by, uh, that God did that for them. Um, Really, in this chapter, we saw the onslaught of the Babylonians. He said that's a refining fire. Remember that? For rebellious Israel? So we see the Babylonian exile was a, a teaching, directing. It's a refining fire for the faithful remnant. And the return from exile, too, was a way of demonstrating his power and his mercy, teaching them once again. As he says, flee from Babylon. My mission for Cyrus will be accomplished. You'll be set free. How does, how does God teach and direct us in our lives? Okay, you, you can't see it on the recording, but Bill just tapped to his Bible. Okay, yeah, the, the word. God uses the word and people that carry the word in our life. Um, I had a little exercise here at the end of this chapter. Do we have time for that? What time do we have here? So the title, The Holy One of Israel, has been mentioned seven times previously since chapter 40. So we have now seen, since we started our our study starting at this second book of Isaiah, as it's often called, we've seen the, the, the title, Holy One of Israel, come up seven times. We're going to take a look at each of the references to discover what is closely associated with this title. So what we have listed here are Isaiah 41.14, Isaiah 41.16, 
Isaiah 41.20, Isaiah 43.3, Isaiah 43.14, Isaiah 45.11, and then also in chapter 47, Isaiah 47.4. So coming up now for the eighth time, the Holy One of Israel is mentioned in Isaiah 48.17. We're going to look at all of those references. I got them listed on your study guide. Let's see if we can kind of find a common thread tying together each time the title Holy One of Israel is mentioned. I'll let you guys start looking those up. I'm going to read the first one since I got that here. So the first reference of the Holy One of Israel comes up in 41.14. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you little one, Israel. I myself am helping you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So what does God closely connect with the title Holy One of Israel there? Our Redeemer. Yeah, redemption. The Holy One is also the Redeemer. Okay, how about 41 verse 16? That's the next time it comes up. So just jump ahead two verses. You will winnow them, and a wind will lift them up, their enemies. A strong wind will scatter them, but you... You will rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you will be confident. So there you have removal of their enemies. So we saw first the Redeemer, the one that removes their fears, and how their fear is going to be removed. The Holy One of Israel is going to make them confident as they rejoice in Him and get rid of all their enemies. They'll be like just blown away by the wind, like chaff that just disappears and dissipates. Okay, and then 41 verse 20, so three times in that chapter it comes up. Verse 20 of that chapter, the Holy One comes up as we read, So that they may see and know and pay attention and perceive this altogether, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Um, There he's tying his title to his acts of deliverance so that they might believe him. Does someone have verse chapter 43 verse 3? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Next half, yep, next phrase. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. So what does he closely connect with his title, Holy One of Israel, there? Savior, right? And pretty close to it, you know, paying, giving a ransom, in this case, um, using Egypt and Cush as a, Kind of a bait for Cyrus is what he's getting at there, that he values Israel so much. So far we've seen the Holy One is the Redeemer. He removes their enemies. He removes their fears, causes them to trust in him. He's their Savior. 43, jump now to verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And he talks about, for your sake I'm taking action. So once again, Holy One of Israel is connected with redemption, that title. And then 45, verse 11, this is what the Lord says. The Holy One of Israel, who formed Israel, do you wish to question me concerning things to come? Will you give me orders about my children and the work of my hands? So there is sovereignty of his control and his work. Isaiah 47, verse 4, our Redeemer, The Lord of armies is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And then we have that in today's chapter, verse 17. So did you notice any common threads? What 
is closely associated with the title, the Holy One of Israel? Redeemer. Certainly Redeemer, yep. So the act of redemption, saving, rescuing, God himself being the one that does what's needed, confidence in him, trusting in him, redemption from enemies. Yeah, so closely associated with that title is God's working to rescue his people, rescue, redemption, uh, dealing with sin. All is closely associated with that title, the Holy One, and also trust in the Lord. So it's really pointing us to the Messiah as we see that title, the Holy One of Israel. I thought it was an important exercise as we're about to see the Holy One of Israel mentioned in chapter 49 once more, doing the, the redemption and carrying out God's plan. It's a neat, neat introduction here to um, the servant of the Lord once more. We saw him predominantly mentioned in chapter 42. He was first introduced there, the servant of the Lord. God says, Behold, my servant in whom I delight. Now, as we meet next time, the servant of the Lord himself is going to speak and introduce himself. And that's why I like taking verse uh, 16, where it says, The sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his spirit. That's messianic. Because he's introducing himself now. And that closely ties in with that. So that's where we'll head next. Um, should be a good study next time. Appreciate your participation today. We're about at our time. So anybody have any questions, comments before we wrap up our, our time today? Let's close with a prayer about what we looked at in the Word. Lord, we thank you for revealing the, these truths and calling us, along with Israel, to pay close attention to them, knowing that you have acted in the past and will continue to act uh, that we might respond as we ought in righteousness and in truth and proclaiming what you have done. Help us to take this gospel truth that is declared for us, that you have rescued us, and to send it to the ends of the earth as we trust in you. We thank you for the time we've been able to spend in this portion of Isaiah's study and ask you to continue to bless us as, as you open us our eyes by your Spirit. And Lord, as the, the fire is ongoing yet and we hear sirens uh, going by throughout the study, we ask that you be with the Smalls and everyone else in their neighborhood with the fire that's happening next door to their house. Uh, we ask that you bless the efforts to contain it. We ask all this in Jesus' name, the Holy One, our Redeemer and Savior. Amen.